Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. We are brought to you by MLB Network here. Baseball America, we want to remind you that we are the must-read for baseball fans from high school to the big leagues. And now you can try four issues of Baseball America for just $4. You visit BaseballAmerica.com forward slash MLB Network for this special MLB Network offer. And, Jim, it's a good time of year to watch MLB Network because they've got all the post-game wrap-ups from all the playoff games and the postseason obviously is in full swing. We're going to talk a lot more about draft report cards, but I do feel it would be kind of remiss to do a podcast in October and not talk about playoff baseball. Uh, As we record this, both the championship series are at 3-2, was really the underdogs leading both those championship series, which is somewhat compelling. I don't know if there's a a big storyline that jumps out about either of these series, though, Jim, except for the fact that you have the underdogs. You know, I think people expected a Yankees-Phillies World Series, and right now we're staring at a Giants-Rangers World Series. Has there been one big storyline that's jumped out for you from these those two series? I think it's just been fun to watch the pitching. And I think the other thing is, and I think maybe people are catching on, is – yeah, I, I do think the Yankees and Phillies, you know, were the deserving favorites in both series. But I think the Rangers and Giants were better than I guess a lot of people gave them credit for. Uh, you know, the the Rangers can score runs. You know, their lineup, you know, it, it doesn't cost two hundred million dollars. You know, their payroll isn't two hundred million dollars like the Yankees, but they have a very formidable lineup. And uh, I actually think the the Rangers starting rotation might be just as good as the Yankees for all the money the Yankees have spent. And, yeah. and similarly, in the National League, I do think the Phillies lineup is superior to the Giants uh, and, and markedly superior. But everybody's talking about H2O and the Phillies pitching. And I think the Giants pitching is, is just as good. I think the rotation's a little deeper and their bullpen might be deeper. And but the, the thing I find curious, if the Phillies lose this series, John, and it'll, it'll go back to last year with the World Series against the Yankees, why won't Charlie Manuel pitch Brad Lidge in a tie game? I don't know. Oswalt loses a game where Brad Lidge could have come in and pitched. And last year, you know, they lost the game. I think it was the game where Damon stole second and just continued on third base, where, again, he wouldn't pitch Brad Lidge in a, in a, in a tie game in the ninth. And I don't uh, I don't quite understand that. Yeah, I, I thought, especially if you're looking at if you're now their bullpen got short. They'd use a lot of game, got a lot of guys. Joe Blanton didn't make it through five innings. I really thought that in that case you would – use Lidge in the tie game in the ninth. And then if you get to extras, I know it's his throw day, but if anyone's more prepared to go more than an inning, it would be, you know, someone like Roy Oswalt, not Brad Lidge. So I thought you'd see Lidge in the ninth. I definitely was thinking in my head as that game was going on, and they showed that graphic on Fox about uh, how short the Phillies bullpen was getting. I thought, okay, you're going to see Lidge in the ninth, maybe the tenth. But if you go longer than that, I would I was expecting to see Oswalt. But Oswald in the ninth yeah, is I mean, definitely again, a surprise. I mean, you can hammer these moves to death, but I just found it curious. I thought it was curious not to use him in a crucial tie game last year. And, right. You know, Oswald, you know, and I'm with you too. I mean, you, know, you don't want to leave it to where Lidge is your last guy in the bullpen and he has to go six innings or something. Right, so, right. Uh, I thought that yeah, I, I guess curious. like in the All-Star game a couple of years ago, but uh, I just thought that, that was kind of curious because I, I really thought the time against the Yankees, 
you know, if you have faith in Brad Lee, you need your closer. Why are you not bringing him in? And then I thought the same thing the other night. But it's been fun to watch. And, you know, I do suspect, you know, we're recording this on Friday morning. I, I kind of expect the Yankees to to beat Colby Lewis today and then set up a game seven. And uh, I do think the Giants are going to beat the Phillies. I, I think the Yankees may pull this off. Really? I, I have actually more faith in the Phillies coming back than I do in the Yankees. I just think Texas has, uh, you know, I think their athleticism, it's not as, they're not as athletic as Tampa, but they had a little bit more uh, power in their lineup. I, and I, I just don't think Tampa played as well as it could uh, in that series. I, I thought Texas just outplayed Tampa. Um, but I think Texas' athleticism bothers the Yankees a little bit, and I just don't think the Yankees will pull it off without Mark Teixeira. I know he didn't have a great year. By his standards, it's really been his second worst year as a big leaguer. Um, I don't think the Yankees, uh, they're not as imposing without Teixeira in the middle of their lineup. I know Lance Berkman's a, you know, the best uh, reserve a $200 million payroll can buy. It's nice to have a veteran switch hitter on your bench uh, like like Lance Berkman, who's shown some thump in the postseason. But I think Texas athleticism and Cliff Lee's going to help them do that. Whereas I think, you know, I do I could see Roy Oswald and Cole Hamels just shutting down uh, the Giants lineup, which has scored more than four runs once since what September 24th, whatever that stat is. It's a decent amount of games, and I, I like Philly's chances of coming back better than New York's, but. Uh, but they, I, I just hope I, we get three or four good games. I mean, and I think we will. I, I, I think we still have some more excitement coming. So. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I also want to pass along that uh, <laughs> Ken Rosenthal tweeting <laughs> about, uh, I don't know if you saw where he interviewing uh, Roy Halladay and Jason Wirth at the end of game five. And Kenny is vertically challenged, I guess is the kind way to put it. But he tweeted, for those yeah, who want to know if, fair way of saying it. For those who want to know if I'm taller than Pedroia or Kirkjian, Hmm. No on both, I think. No on the enta- entire planet, basically. So, I I enjoy. Well, I was just gonna I was gonna throw Kirchin out there, and I, I I don't know. I think they, I think he might be selling himself a little bit short there. No pun intended. He might be as tall as Tim. <laughs> I think that pun was fully intended, but I really do. Uh, I I I think that Rosenthal has brought a lot to Fox's broadcast, and I've actually I've actually enjoyed the TV broadcast in the postseason too. So, it's been a good uh, for me. It's been a good month for baseball wise, and. Uh, uh, I, I've enjoyed uh, the postseason more than I maybe I thought I would. Maybe maybe it helps to not have uh, uh, emotions wrapped up in it and just get to watch a, just get to watch a, what I think is a quality baseball. And like you said, enjoying the pitching. Uh, but all, a lot of these teams, and one of the things that uh, really stands out when you watch the Giants, Jim, is just how homegrown their best players are homegrown guys, uh, with the exception of Aubrey Huff. But that team really is in the postseason. The number one reasons are their homegrown pitchers and Buster Posey and. Uh, uh, you know, I had to find a team. It'd be, I, I would like to do some research. It might be for my column for this issue about what teams have had better hits three years in a row in the first round than Tim Lincecum, Madison Bumgarner, and Buster Posey. Obviously, Bumgarner is not at the level yet of a Lincecum or a Posey, uh, but he has been a, a very effective fourth starter for them this year. And, and that is a nice segue for me into our draft report cards. And I think uh, you know one of the things we do in draft report cards, Jim, is rate the drafts. Here are the top five drafts. And this year was pretty fascinating to do that exercise because you're trying to figure out uh, the best drafts and, you know, the depth versus star power uh, argument comes up again. We, You and I have discussed this a lot, but I think I'd rather have a draft where you get Tim Lincecum and nothing else than have a draft where you get four or five decent big leaguers. I mean, that's an extreme case, but uh, I think we're seeing with the Giants, star power is what gets you to the playoffs. Oh, I agree, and, I, and I've said that for years, too. I mean, 
uh, I mean, you obviously want to try to hit on as many draft picks, and you'd like to have as deep a farm system as possible. When it comes down to it, I think you win with stars. You know, if you have, you know, a Lincecum and a Buster Posey and, and two or three other, you know, Matt Keane, you know, two or three other guys who are well above average players, you can surround those guys with pretty average, pretty reasonably cost talent and win. Um, I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, you know, and, and, and I agree with you. And I, and I think, too, you know, if you look at it, if you go back and you look at a typical draft, I don't think fans necessarily realize how little, you know, above average talent, major league talent there is in a draft. You might in a typical draft have about, oh, a half dozen guys you would, you know, classify as, you know, certified flat out stars. Then you might have another. 12 or 18 guys in a typical draft who are, you know, solid, above average, big league players for a number of years. And then you're talking about maybe another two dozen guys who are, you know, solid contributors, but they're really complementary players, you know, more, you know, maybe your seventh inning reliever or a good utility guy or a, a decent, you know, platoon player. And that's it. You know, you're talking in a typical draft, you're getting 50 players who are truly useful, and then you're getting a bunch of other guys who either, you know, range from, you know, one or two at-bats or innings in the big leagues to, you know, maybe, you know, they're a below-average regular on a mediocre team or, a, you know, just a, an end-of-the-bench type of guy. You know, so in a typical draft, if you get two good major league players, you're doing better than the average. Right. You know, and if you're getting one of the half-dozen superstars in the draft – you know, then you're you're doing great. And then the funny thing is, is really outside of the first, you know, say four or five picks in a draft, which there's usually a consensus, and this year there was a consensus top three, you know, those other, you know, half dozen superstars in the draft, you know, I mean, there may be one or two in the first five picks, those other four or five superstars could fall anywhere in the draft. You know, sometimes it's the first round. Sometimes it's the 62nd round with Mike Piazza. So, right. you know, just because your team isn't picking high, doesn't mean that, you know, there are good players in the draft for a long time out there. You just have to identify them. Right, right. And that's uh, that's obviously the biggest challenge. Well, let's talk about the teams that we ranked at the top of the draft. We went Indians, Red Sox, Blue Jays, Rockies, Nationals. Obviously, a huge part of this is not just drafting the players, but signing the players. And I don't think it hurts that the Indians really invested in their draft $9.4 million in their first 10 rounds, correct? No, that's the whole draft. Whole that's draft. the whole draft. Um, yeah, I shouldn't say first 10 round because obviously they went over slot a little bit too. But uh, I think we both agree the Indians draft was the best draft. Um, you know, obviously starting off with Drew Pomerantz, mixing in a little LeVon Washington, who was a first rounder in 2009. Uh, a guy who's definitely a mixed bag, uh, not a universally appreciated guy by scouts, I'll say, uh, but a guy with some athleticism, speed. Uh, and I, if, you, if you like him, you really believe in the bat. Uh, Robbie Aviles, a guy who uh, is a nice uh, risk, I think, to take it set in the seventh round. Uh, a guy like Tommy John uh, near the end of his high school season, but you know, could have gone in the first three rounds if he'd uh, been healthy. Uh, what else really stood out for you about this Indians draft class as far as making it the number one class? Well, I think when we're looking at the top classes, too, like you said, John, I mean, it's, you know, at this point, you know, you, we haven't seen a lot of these guys on the field, especially with the signing deadline. So many guys go to the deadline. You don't get a whole lot to judge them on. And even if they do play pro ball, they're, they're for summer. They're, they're usually playing at a low level, so it's not like you can judge a lot. So I think the drafts that jump out to both of us are the ones where it seems like the team got a disproportionate share of talent. And then there's two ways of doing that. One, you can have a lot of extra picks because you lost free agents like the Blue Jays did. And we'll talk about them in a minute. Or you can invest heavily 
like the Indians did. You know, you, a couple other guys they got who I think are really interesting. You know, Tony Walters yeah. got first round money in the third round. Yeah, you know, and you know, you'll hear a little bit. You know, like with almost anybody in the draft, there's a little bit of differing opinion. You know, is he a shortstop? Is he not a shortstop? But you know, I think you're looking at possibly a, a very offensive. You know, guy who gets his job done at shortstop or a, a good offensive second baseman. Kyle Blair in the fourth round, um, you know, could have been, you know, maybe a first-round pick out of high school if he were signable. I, I think that's a tremendous value there. Absolutely. Uh, Alex Levisky, I really like in the eighth round. He got a million bucks. I mean, that's late first-round money. Uh, he's a catcher with good power, good arm strength. And, I mean, I joke, he's in the, you know, I do Ohio for our draft coverage. And, you know, I was joking with area scouts. I mean, he's the one guy, in the, one catcher in the draft, high school catcher. You know, you don't have to worry, like, okay, what's going to happen when he has to face, uh, you know, has to receive quality pitching. Right. You know, we were joking. That's one guy who, who probably think pro ball is easier than high school because he caught Stetson Alley, who probably had as electric stuff as anybody but didn't always know where it was going. So, uh, yeah, I like him. And, and even, you know, you keep going on down to that draft. That the, you know, you got even Jordan Cooper in the ninth round. He's a really good – he really knows how to pitch. Tyler Holt in the tenth round out of Florida State. It doesn't necessarily do things, you know, in the prettiest fashion according to scouts, but you know, in terms of playing defense and getting on base and running on base, you know, once he gets there, he was one of the better guys in college and I think they got one of the better steals in the draft in the twenty third round. Tony Dishler, junior college pitcher, was ninety one, ninety four all spring. He led LSU Eunice to the Division Two JUCO national title. And we thought, I mean, he had a guy. He was a guy who could have gone, you know, third to fifth, fourth to seventh round. Uh, and when he drafted, we'll drop that low. I, I assumed, you know, like we usually do. Okay, that guy must be asking for a lot of money. He's going to want to go into college, and they right. signed him for two hundred fifty-five thousand dollars, which, you know, isn't you know out of line at all. I mean, that's what he would have gotten in about the fifth round anyway. Absolutely. No, I definitely love. Uh, I, I'm a I'm a Tyler Holt guy. I believe in Tyler Holt. Uh, I think he's going to hit. I think he's going to run. I think he's uh, going to be better than people think. That's his. That's his entire motivation, is to be better than uh, people think he would be. They actually have. Uh, I don't. I don't think he probably came up at all in your draft report card. But uh, one of Dave Perkins' favorite players the last few years has been Kyle Petter, uh, their 34th round pick, a left-handed, uh, a left-hander El Camino JC, coached by former uh, Indians farmhand Nate Fernley. Uh, who led El Camino JC to the Final Four of uh, California JUCOs. And Kyle Petter is just a little left-hander, uh, spins a breaking ball, has some arm strength. Wouldn't shock me if Kyle Petter wound up as a big league reliever in the 34th round, just making this class, uh, for me, a little bit deeper. Um, I, I, I think it's always nice to have a guy like that toward the bottom of your draft who's also got a shot, too. But I think, you know, obviously, like we said, these drafts are built at the top. And the Red Sox, Jim, I believe, have ranked in our top five in drafts the last four or five years. It's been a it's pretty – true. And, again, I mean, I, I think that comes down to the fact that I, I think there's no question year in, year out, they're the most aggressive team in the draft in terms of being willing to give, you know, first-round, sandwich-round money to players, even if they don't take them that high. And, and they did it again this year. I mean, they wound up – Given you know if you sandwich round money to or, or better to their top six picks in the draft, and then they gave you know second round money to their sixth rounder and their uh, and their eleventh rounder, you know, and then they even paid a little bit for some other guys too. So they're not afraid of investing in the draft, and you know they they they, they have a bunch of guys who they didn't sign. It might be pretty good picks three years from now too. They kind of look at it as a the high-end investment, you know, we're going to take, you know, in a lot of cases, the best guy on the board just about every round, and we'll sign as many of them as we can. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, 
and I don't, I don't think, I mean, like to me, uh, their top guy, their top pick, Colburn Vidic, is not their top player they drafted. Clearly, that, I would think that's Anthony Renato. He's got the highest ceiling. Who's next in your mind, though, on in terms of ceiling for that Red Sox draft class? I have a hard time picking who I think is their second highest ceiling. Would it be, is it Garen Cicchini? Is it, uh, is it Colburn Vidic, their first pick? And to me, Vidic looks like a, he has a chance to be a really solid player. I don't think he has star potential, though. Uh, who would you say is the next in terms of star potential after Anthony Renato? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we like the draft so much. Uh, you know, I, 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 I like Garen Cicchini a lot. If I, my, my gut would say pick Garen Cicchini. You know, and I'm working on our Red Sox top 30 prospect list. And Garen Cicchini won't be their second guy out of their draft on their list. But my gut is that he might be that guy. I think he was – pretty much as good as any high school hitter in the draft. He just tore up an ACL early in the season, didn't play much, and he wanted a bunch of money. He wanted $1.75 million, which is why he lasted until the fourth round. But I I think he's going to be kind of a prototypical third baseman. Um, You know, Vidic Vidic probably has more all-around tools. I mean, Vidic's got, you know, depending on how much you like him, I mean, you could project Vidic as an above-average hitter with at least average power, although in pre-draft workouts for a few teams, I mean, he was putting balls in the second deck in San Diego, for instance. So if you dream, you can maybe say he's got plus power. And, you know, once he gets going, he's a plus runner underway. And, I mean, he's a guy who threw 90, up to 92 off the mound, so he's got a good arm, too. I just – I like Chikini a little bit more. I, the Red Sox played Vidic at third base. Um, I know when I was doing our draft stuff, Indiana's another one of my states, you know, that I covered before the draft. I just don't think he has those true infield actions, and I don't think he has the hands – the soft hands really play the infield. So then he's probably uh, an outfielder. And while some teams thought, you know, okay, this guy's a chance to play center field, you know, I don't know in the Red Sox system if he's going to get a chance to play center field as much as it would be a corner. Just when you look at a guy like Jeremy Hazelbaker, their fifth-round pick from last year, who's a a plus-plus runner. But, you know, he he didn't play center field this year because he's on a team with Ray Fuentes. They have guys who fit the center field profile more. So I guess it's a long way of saying, John, for me – I think Chikini probably has a better chance to be a star because when you factor in positional value, I think Vidic's going to wind up as a right fielder. Right. And I think Chikini's going to stay at third base. And I wouldn't rule out, I mean, two other guys you could throw in there, Sean Coyle, who, you know, a little, you know, he's going to be a second baseman, but he can really, really hit. And he's got some pop and he can run. And, and Bryce Brents, you know, is a guy who, you know, is a fairly good athlete with a lot of power potential. So, you know, they kind of spread the wealth out there. Yeah. And that's, that's why they're, again, that's why we like their drafts. I mean, the, they spread the wealth, and they just don't have all their – their draft is not tied up in whether or not Anthony Renato, um, you know, makes it or not. And, and conversely, um, they didn't make our top five, but the Pittsburgh Pirates, to me, Jim, are like one of the most interesting drafts this year. And why not not making our top five when basically they got the two best arms, just pure arms, in the draft, and Jamison Tyone, who was the best pitcher available this year, and Stetson Alley, who we already talked about, just in terms of pure stuff. Uh, throws in the has flashed upper 90s velocity and has flashed, you know, like a 90 mile an hour power slider, like a John Smoltz, you know, two pitch mix really basically um, at a Stetson Alley. If the Pirates didn't make our our top uh, five, obviously you have to draw the line somewhere. I think we both thought they were a top 10 draft. Sure. But uh, you know, what did you think? I don't know if we've talked about this, but what did you think about the fact that you have to go to the 11th round? Before you find, they basically drafted one, in the first 10 rounds, they drafted one player who was not a right-handed pitcher. Um, that struck me as strange. And I didn't get a chance to discuss that really with uh, with the Pirates. Um, 
you know, and discussing a draft report card with them. But that just that that struck me as odd, and, and almost that's almost what was a barrier for me for picking them in the top five, even though they got potentially two stars in Tyone and Alley. No, I agree with you, John. I think they are top ten draft. You know, we draw the cutoff at five. I think if we were ranking uh, best, you know, two picks for any team, they might be number one. Right. I think I would take those two guys over, say, Bryce Harper and AJ Cole, uh, for instance. So I mean, they would be number one. But I, but it's. You know, I didn't think their depth necessarily put them in the top ten. It was very right-handed heavy. You know, maybe they literally took the take the best player available on our board uh, to an extreme. I don't think their system is that loaded with hitters that they consciously said, oh, let's just load up on pitching. I, I, I did think that was curious. And, you know, I mean, for me, the, the reason they weren't a top five draft is, you know, their third-round pick, you know, maybe it's a guy I'm just overly familiar with, but, you know, Mel Ross Jr. was kind of a hot-button player yeah. uh, up here in Illinois where there were a couple guys who loved If you saw him on his best day, they loved him. But he was yeah, – he's one of the guys I'm really interested to see what happens to him in pro ball because if you talk to, to guys who liked him, they're like, okay, you know, major league bloodlines. His dad was a big league closer. He's six foot three, two hundred, switch hitter, good bat speed. He's strong. And he led the national junior college players in steals. And then you talk to other guys, and they're saying, well, you know what? His pure speed is just, you know, slightly above average. He's stealing those bases on JUCO catchers. His swing's real flat, so he hits a lot of ground balls, and he really doesn't barrel the ball consistently. Um, and he might not be quick enough for center. So I mean, obviously the Pirates liked him on the high end. But, I mean, I, he's one of the few guys, you know, again, the Juco players are harder to scout that, you know, you get, you know, some guys will tell you he's a five-tool center fielder, and our guys will tell you, I really don't see a tool that plays as plus. So, uh, he, you know, he, he's a real interesting one, and as you alluded to, he's the only position player they sign out the first ten rounds of the draft. Yeah, and the guys they drafted further on down, other position players, are guys like Dan Grovot and uh, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his name right, but Drew Maggi they gave a lot of money, money to. I like Drew Maggi. I'm not, I'm not there on that guy or Jared Lakin uh, being your second hitter. There's just no, there's not a real a lot of diversity to their system, uh, to their draft. That said, we could look back on this five years from now with Stetson Alley and, and uh, maybe Stetson Alley's their closer and uh, and Jamison Tyone's their number one starter, and those are the two reasons why the Pirates have stopped their string of losing seasons at 20 or something like that. You know, I mean. Oh, you're right. Back to what I was saying, you know. I mean, you know, and again, I, I fault him a little bit for not signing four picks in the first ten rounds. I like gambling on guys, but you know, Austin Kubitz had a two million dollar price tag. If you wanted to make a run at him, you could have taken him in the twentieth round. Right. Take but, a take a take a position player. Take a hitter. You know, get get a guy you can sign, and they did spend in round, you know, after the tenth round too. So it kind of even out. But you know, what we were saying before, I mean, you know, right now, I mean, to me, that's somewhere in the six to ten range. But it's very possible that of the six, you know, say superstars in this draft, the Pirates might get two of them. And if that's the case, then it's the best draft. Right. That's that's kind of you know, it's you know, we don't put letter grades on every draft like we used to. Yeah. And I think that might have even been before you started working for Baseball America, John. But when I when I started working for them, I would put letter grades on them every year. Yeah, and no, I remember that was the first. Uh, I think that was the last the, the the last draft report card you did them with. I think I was still getting photos for those guys. Remember my okay, Matt? Okay, well there you go. My so, Matt yeah, Halloran. Uh, Matt Halloran sent me his uh, prom picture and wrote on the back, uh, "Keep this autograph; it'll be worth something someday." And I don't think Matt Halloran made it out of first uh, out, out of uh, Class A. So poor Matt Halloran. But you know, it's like the <laughs> scouting directors always hated having letter grades on there and 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 they're, and they're just saying you know you, even less so you know, everybody even the nfl teams you know will complain oh you know we're getting graded on our draft right after the draft and you don't know well these guys in most cases are three 
four years from the majors, and you just you just don't know. I mean, really, all you can judge these guys on are you know how are these players evaluated before the draft, and then in a few rare cases, okay, this guy you know went into pro ball and he was better than we thought. But you know, I think it's. I guess the way I always look at this, John, is it's guesswork. I mean, I think it's, it's in our cases, very educated guesswork. We right. put a lot of time into it, but you just don't know. I mean, you know, we're sitting here talking about the Pirates and, you know, the, the Moneyball acolytes will sit there and tell, you know, high school pitching so risky. Um, and I don't think it's that much more risky than college pitching. But again, I mean, a lot can happen to a pitcher's. You know, I mean, we're talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates, I mean, who've been the the franchise that's had more first-round picks go down, you know, to pitching injuries than probably any in the last 10 or 15 years. It's not out of the realm of possibility that the Tyone and Alley could get hurt, and, and then they get nothing, too. So you, you just don't know how it turns out with these guys. Yeah, absolutely. It's the Baseball America podcast with John Manuel and Jim Callis. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're brought to you by the MLB Network. Uh, Jim, one of the things I want to also touch on here is I think one of our uh, favorite categories is the most intriguing background. And we always uh, seem like we usually disagree about what intrigues us. It's the most open-ended category of draft report cards. Um, but I think we actually uh, we seem to agree more than uh, more this year than usual. Uh, uh, you, know, you usually have your mix of your, your baseball relatives and your non-baseball relatives. I liked our, our, our baseball relatives this year were pretty cool. I mean, the, the biggest name at five, Delano DeShields, I think was the most obvious name just because he's a junior. But uh, Cam Bedrosian, I love the fact that his, his middle name, I believe, is uh, Rock. Cameron oh, Rock. Oh, really? Yeah, it's Cameron Rock Bedrosian. I um, did not know that. Yeah, as a, as a, as a, uh, obviously, uh, for his dad being nicknamed Bedrock in his big league career. Osney Guillen, who almost uh, caused the, <laughs> you know, the unraveling of the White Sox front office. I just think it's awesome that we listed Osney Guillen. He gets extra points for the contentiousness there. And the backstory... I think we, we decided, what, John, that there were four or five teams that drafted the sons of their current big league manager. Right. But we, we decided that because Kenny Williams and Ozzie Guillen uh, almost came to blows over how low Osney went in the draft <laughs> compared to where Kenny Williams Jr. had gone in the draft a few years ago, yeah. that, that that was the tiebreaker. And he, he was the most intriguing of all those guys. I'm not sure Osney Guillen is 16 rounds, rounds worse than Kenny Williams Jr. Oh, uh, I... Uh, I'm trying to put this in a kind way. <laughs> I, I don't think many pass. teams outside of Chicago evaluated Kenny Williams Jr. as anywhere close to a six-round pick. Yes, but then we have. Uh, yes, I don't think. I, I don't think where they went in the draft is any reflection. I, I, I dare say that Osney Gein is probably a better prospect than Kenny Williams Jr. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And then uh, Joe Jackson of the Royals and Kendall Radcliffe to the Rangers. Explain why those guys were the most intriguing backgrounds. Well, Kendall Radcliffe is the great, great nephew of Double Duty Radcliffe, who I keep thinking is in the Hall of Fame, and he's not, but he's he's you know pretty much as good as any two-way player in Negro League history. And then Joe Jackson, I think, is another great, great. I want to say nephew, but it might be grandson of uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. So uh, you, you don't too often get a. Uh, a shoeless Joe Jackson uh, reference uh, in the draft more cards, but we had to go had to go with that one. I also love that the White Sox still have the Double Duty Classic name for Double Duty Radcliffe. It's a tribute game for high school players, basically in Chicago every year, and it's also like uh, an event that kind of celebrates the history of Negro League baseball. And uh, uh, I, I love that. I, I love that they're still uh, the White Sox have kept alive the Double Duty Radcliffe uh, that, that name and his role in the Negro Leagues. And I'm disappointed the White Sox did not draft uh, Kendall Radcliffe. 
Well, I um, think what might have happened there, and I didn't talk to them specifically about this, and, and by the way, Joe Jackson is the great-great-nephew of Shoeless Joe. Okay. I know, Ken Radcliffe was a guy whose name came up. I mean, he's a, he's a Chicago high school kid who's athletic, but is extremely, extremely raw. I mean, you hear people talk about the term two-year rookie ball guy, like a player you draft yep. that's going to need two years of rookie ball before he's ready. Yep. Well, I talked to area scouts who were kind of intrigued by Radcliffe's athleticism, but said, you know, that guy might be a three-year rookie guy. And there were scouts I talked to who liked him, but said, you know what, that guy really needs to go to junior college or college and play. While I like him, I don't want to draft him because I don't think he's ready for pro ball. So right. it could have been a case where the White Sox, you know, said, you know what, this kid's better off going to college and signing us, you know, having having signing him right now and then throwing him right into pro ball. But uh, so that might have been it. I'm sure they they knew who he was because he's right there in their backyard and, and their connection to double duty. And then I think we also liked in the non-baseball, rel- not baseball relatives, that Matt Caesar of the Cubs via Villanova is the most uh, was the most intriguing background there. I mean, this is a guy who's a legitimate NFL prospect is kind of a Bryant Westbrook type of back, correct? Is that a fair? You're more of a football guy. He's more of a, I think, a more of a, a slot receiver return guy okay. type of guy. But the coach there said he's faster than Brian Westbrook was when Westbrook was there. He's like a Wes Welker type thing is what you're saying, because he's a smallish wide receiver, right? Yeah, but a lot faster. He, he, and I was looking recently, I finally saw you know, Pro Football Weekly actually did a little note in their last issue on baseball prospects in the fo- in this year's football draft, and they haven't paid as like a fourth or fifth round NFL pick right now. Interesting. And then, of course, he also has where he's donating a kidney, I believe. No, it was bone marrow. The Villanova coach marrow. has all his players, I don't know if it's a blood test, but basically all his players submit to a test and join the National Bone Marrow Registry. Ah. It, you know, it's very hard sometimes to find a match. And yeah. There was, a I think, a one-year-old girl who had some form of, I want to say leukemia, who needed a bone marrow transplant, and last fall, uh, Caesar came up as a match. And actually, you know, when you're doing these transplants, you have to be ready to go kind of at any time. And, and he was willing to miss the, the – it's not Division One AA, but I guess it's what, the Football Championship Series. FCS. Uh, yeah, playoffs for Villanova. He was going to wind up missing either the semifinal or championship game to go through. And it, it's a tough thing. It's not just like you're donating blood. I mean, it's – you lose a lot of strength. It's, it takes a lot. You know, donating bone marrow is not, you know, something that you bounce back from very quickly. And he was ready to give up playing championship game. You know, told the coach, hey, you know, this is more important than us playing. Well, she, I want to say the little girl came down with a cold or something, so it wasn't optimal. He wound up playing in the playoffs. Uh, Villanova won the national championship. He was MVP of the national championship game. Went for, uh, I think something like 280 or 300 all-purpose yards in the game. You had tremendous games. Then in the spring, you know, he's a draft prospect. But again, you know, it comes up. You know, she still needs the donation. And then there was a time to give. You know, that that would have worked out right in the middle of baseball season. And you know, and I guess some guys could have said, "Hey, you know what? I can't do. You know, I need to be my best for baseball." No, I mean, he he donated, and he uh, I think he missed three weeks of action. And I was talking to Tim Wilkin, their scouting director, and uh, hit a home run in his first at-bat, I believe, when he came back and went 10 for 15, uh, you know, with the Cubs bearing down on him. And, I mean, between the NFL potential and just the story with the little girl, which is, you know, I think it's one of those things everybody likes to say, would like to think, hey, you know, I'd do the same thing if I were in a situation, but... You know, I'm not sure everybody would have. And uh, right. between that and, I mean, the guy's a tremendous athlete, and he, he came out and hit close to four. 100 in a short stint in the Northwest League. He's 
very, very interesting. And, and he's I mean, a legit prospect. Kind of, he could have written 500 words on his background, you know, in the 500-word draft report card. But uh, he also has kind of a unique deal with the Cubs where, you know, his contract is set up. It's, it's a two-tiered contract where he got an initial bonus to come out and play pro ball, uh, you know, as a fifth-round pick. But, you know, they don't know what's going to happen with him with the NFL draft. Well, if he – I forget the date of the combine. It's sometime in February, the NFL combine. If he gives them a written, you know, written letter, you know, the signature that says he's giving up football will not attend the combine, he will earn an extra $500,000 bonus on top of the 100000 he already signed for. So that's, that's – his story is very, very interesting. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, cram that into 250 words in the uh, prospect handbook, but – but I'll try somehow. Well, he might have to get the Andrew Brackman exception. Cause I think the, the, the Charlton Jimerson uh, treatment. So. That's right. That's right. Some, guys, to Caesar. some guys ride up to get a little bit more, more space in the prospect handbook, and uh, we try to enforce those 250-word uh, uh, limits for J.J. Cooper, or else that this, the Reds and Reds and Royals fans would get a lot more than, uh, than anybody else would get. Uh, it's the Baseball America podcast with John and Jim. Uh, Jim, other, I guess the other thing I wanted to point out, uh, one or two other things I wanted to point out with draft report cards. We do have an uh, email, though, on our Facebook page. It's a Baseball America. It's a Facebook backslash Baseball America uh, page on, uh, for our official Facebook page. Stephen Tarpley asks, how much has Jacob Thompson of the uh, Rays and Corey Vaughn of the Mets, how much have they improved their status since the draft? How much do rookie and low A-ball numbers really mean for four-year college players? Those are two guys who took the New York Penn League uh, kind of by storm. They were both outstanding. Jake Thompson, of course, the guy who was at Long Beach State, really kind of had three middling seasons there. After but was young, right? Didn't he come out of high school as a junior? Yeah, I that's the interesting he's one of the guys thing. He went to college a year early too. He did, but you know, he's actually not young. He would have been old. He would have been Jeremy Bonderman old if he'd stayed for all his high school career. Uh, so he's 21. He turned 21 in August. So he was 20 when he was drafted, so a little bit on the young side, but not overly so. And then Corey Vaughn, son of Greg Vaughn, the ex-big league slugger who hit 50 home runs in one year for the Padres. Uh, for me, Jim, really, I'm almost more impressed when a hitter goes out and does it, especially at, at uh, Brooklyn where you know Ike Davis famously went out and had a terrible debut, didn't even hit a home run, and then a year and a half later was in the big leagues and had a, you know, a solid rookie season, not a great rookie season, but a solid rookie year with the Mets this year. Um, whereas Jake, but Jake Thompson, uh, really was outstanding at Hudson Valley and then had, you know, 11 scoreless innings for Charlotte. Um, I actually think I'm a little bit more impressed with Vaughn because he had so much swing and miss in college and he did not have as many problems with that. I mean, he still did still have contact issues a little bit, uh, in Brooklyn, but, uh, he's got big tools. Uh, he can run, he has power. Uh, he might be a nice find for the Mets. Uh, what was he like? A third round pick, fourth round pick? I think fourth round pick. Yeah. Did, did that? Uh, but, but overall, though, I don't think their debuts change a whole lot about how they view them. I, I'm more optimistic about them than I would have been if they had a bad debut. But I, I don't think it. Uh, so far, they, I still think of them, uh, you know, as good prospects, but not any kind of a uh, stone cold lead pipe lock. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the thing is, you know, the, 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 I can't speak. The debuts is what I was trying to get out there. The debuts for both those guys are nice, but I don't think they changed the long-term prognosis a whole lot. I mean, both those guys did get drafted a little earlier than we thought they would. Um, and, you know, so far so good. It's just, you know, I, I think stats mean a lot more. You know, I keep borrowing this line. Theo Epstein said this about six or seven years ago. The stats mean a lot more as you get higher up the, the minor league ladder. And, 
you know, you know, there's plenty of guys who put up big numbers in the lower levels. You know, we, neither of those guys was in the Pioneer League, which is a hitter's paradise. But you know, you'll see guys put up huge numbers in the Pioneer League, and then you never hear from them again. And so, I think you look at it as a positive first step. You know, I look at both those guys, and you know, in the back of my mind, I think, okay, you know, maybe those guys were a little bit better than I thought they were. But you know, I, I don't think those guys. I'm not looking at their performances, say, and thinking, geez, those guys should have been first round picks, or they'd be first round picks if the draft uh, happened again. I actually have a, a question that came into us uh, via Twitter, John. Okay. Uh, from uh, J.P. Schwartz of Springfield, Illinois. No uh, no stranger to VA chats or podcasts. And he wants to know uh, who we think is the best uh, draft pick from the 25th round or beyond that we think is the draft's biggest sleeper. Hmm. 25th I'll round? Throw out two, I'll throw out uh, two names, and I don't know if you have – any thoughts, but but uh, we, we kind of, when we look at late-round picks, and I think you almost have to do this, we split them into two categories. You have your your over-slot guys and your guys who, you know, were not slot picks. Because, right. you know, if you're, if you're willing to pay 500000 to a guy, you know, in the, in the 26th round or whatever, that's not, uh, you know, that, that's not really a sleeper. That's a guy who fell because of signability. And, you know, one of the teams I did, and, and that's why these two guys jump out at me, is the Dodgers when we were doing draft four cards. And, and they had a guy who fell into each category. They had a 26-round pick out of Des Moines Area Community College named Scott Shebler, who they signed for 300000 on the day of the, uh, the signing deadline. He sounds interesting. Yeah, he, he was. I mean, he was a guy who, who had a nice year, really hit hit well at uh, at Des Moines Area Community College. But, again, it's Iowa Junior College competition, uh, so it's hard to say uh, – you know, you, you can't really judge a whole lot based on that. Um, but guys said you could hit, and he's athletic. He was going to go to Wichita State as a sophomore. And then he went to the Northwoods League over the summer and just had a tremendous summer. And, yeah, Northwoods League, John, I think we talked about internally, and Aaron Fitt pushed our top prospect list to 20 players this year. That, that's probably the second-best summer league right now. Now, there's no probably about it. I don't think it's it. the amount of credit it deserves. And he went up there and played great. So I think he's the overslot signing. And then in the 30th round, they got Sean Tolleson out of Baylor, and Tolleson was a guy who, coming out of high school, would have probably been a first-round or first-two-round pick if he hadn't gotten hurt. Right. And then Baylor, he was just up and down and, and very consistent. And for whatever reason, you know, pro ball, you know, maybe it was just you know pitching on a more regular basis. You, know, you have games every day. They used him out of the bullpen, and I mean, shoot, he was 90-94 with a good breaking ball, and it looked like a guy who you know might be a very good reliever in a couple of years for their big league team. So those were probably the two guys who, who jumped out to me from round 25 on, on down. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the one who I, – I, I love the Sean Tolleson pick. He did have a really nice debut, and I, you know, there's, there's something there. There's no doubt there's something there. Um, I, I kind of like Eric Pettis, uh, the right-hander that the uh, the Phillies drafted in the 35th round. He had a ridiculous debut, and I, I kind of lump him in with the Phillies, uh, had this very good recent track record of creating value with some college pitchers who uh, get drafted late. Uh, they did it uh, with guys like Vance Worley. They didn't draft late, but uh, Mike Stutz was a guy they drafted like in the ninth round, that kind of thing. He's already got the triple A. Mike Sisko was like a 30-something round pick. He's already gotten the double A. Uh, Austin Hyatt is a guy who they jumped to high A in 2010. It was like a 15th round pick. They've done very well with him. You know, Pettis was a 35th round pick. And, uh, you know, first I have faith in Gorman Heimuller. Second of all, I have faith that, Eric Pettis has a long track record of success in college uh, where he both was a closer and a starter at UC Irvine. The one question I have about Pettis is that he's been used. Uh, he threw a lot in college, and he threw a lot this year. I think he got close to 180 innings um, between the two uh, in 2010. 
So that's one guy that, you know, uh, stood out for me because his, his, his debut was quite good. And he's, he's not a 25th rounder or, or down, but, you know, the guy who's the upper slot guy for me was Eric Goodell of the Mets in the 24th round, $350,000. The Mets are not known for going over slot. It's very rare. They did it twice this year, I guess, with Matt Harvey and then Goodell. But I really like Eric Goodell. He might be the second best player they drafted. Uh, another guy like Sean Tolleson was a big deal as a high school junior entering his high school senior year, had Tommy John. Uh, took him a while to get back to his top form, but he was a guy that, you know, our Dave Perkins saw him late in the regular season with UCLA and saw him outstanding. I got that confirmed by the Mets that he, uh, he they saw him that well, you know, pitched that well. Uh, John Savage, the UCLA coach in Omaha, the Cowboys series, was like, please stop writing about how good Eric Goodell looks right now because we're probably going to lose him, and they did lose him. And, uh, you know, 24th round pick to me, uh, we had him as the number two above slot bonus. And, uh, you know, that's a pick um, I'd be very enthusiastic about if I were a Mets fan. So I'm sorry for our reader. I jumped a little bit ahead of the 25th round, but I'm going to cheat a little bit and have Eric Goodell in the 24th round as my other uh, top guy. So that's That's fine. I I think it's fair. Kind of where we stand on those. uh, But, you know, and the other, I guess the other obvious one, we've talked about this a little bit, Jim, but uh, ones that got away. Um, I think it was just kind of stark this year, though, and just how uh, the, the high school pool of players who got away was pretty outstanding, whereas the college group of players, it's not, a, it's not a great group of college seniors that's going back to campus this year. Pretty much, if you were a college junior this year, I don't know if that's attributable to the money being bigger now or the fact that uh, the college class this year wasn't that strong, so it really got picked over pretty hard. Um, I think it's the leverage. I just don't think you have – you know, this year they spent $195 million, which was an industry record on draft bonuses, and yet you know, we had, you know, we could have gone 10 or 15 deep on very talented high school players who didn't sign. Right. And on the colleges, we had trouble coming with five. I just think it, it goes to show. And, and, you know, teams, I think, were a little bit more aware this, this year, played it a little smarter. You know, even, you know, you mentioned Matt Harvey got over slot. Well, you know, none of the college pitchers got a ton of money over slot. Correct. Pomerantz, Chris Sale, Matt Harvey, Deck McGuire. Anthony Renato. You know, Anthony Renato. Well, Renato got a lot over slot because of where he went. But, you know, the, the guys who went high, you know, usually a couple of those guys get big league contracts. And, you know, we saw last year the Indians did it with Alex White last year and with Drew Pomerantz this year. If you're a college junior, yeah, you have some leverage in that. You can go back to school. But once you go back to school or you go play independent ball or whatever you wind up doing, then you, you've really lost a lot of leverage because nobody takes you seriously the second time around that you're really going to go back into the draft for the third year in a row. And I just think you know, most of, almost all of your top college picks are going to sign because they're going to have a hard time making any more money. I mean, you shoot, John, look at the guys who didn't sign this year, our top five college picks. Number one. Barrel outs with the Diamondbacks didn't pass the physical, or he would have signed for two million, which would have been a little under slot. Right. So it wasn't like he was holding out for big money. He just didn't pass the team's physical. Number two was a junior college player, Austin Wood, who does have a ton of leverage remaining. He's transferring to Southern California. He looked very good in the Cape Cod League. He was part of a, I'm not a championship a team in the Cape. But you know, he's inconsistent in college, and, and guys don't know what to make of him. And, yeah, I'm you know, not had, a believer on Austin. I'll, I'll go on record again. I'm not. I'm not a believer in the arm strength, big body guy who can't even be a high leverage reliever on a junior college team. I mean, I'm just not. Yeah, but, it's only, but you know, he wasn't your typical college guy either. Your number three guy on our list is Birch Smith from Howard Junior College. He's another junior college guy who right. you know, has a chance if he puts it all together to go in the top two or three rounds Cole next Green's year, a pit- and that's why he went to Oklahoma. Yeah. You know, number four on our list was really the only 
traditional, typical, you know, college junior going back to a, for his senior year was Cole Green out of uh, Texas. Tigers took him in the fourth round. And Cole Green, you know, very high on pitchability. Stuff is probably very average by pro standards. And they just disagreed over what he was worth. And, and so he went back. And you know, it wasn't like he turned down a ton of money. And, and then the fifth guy was Josh Osage, who, you know, has been seen in the upper 90s before he had Tommy John surgery. And, you know, the Angels, I give him credit, you know, made a run at him. But, you know, if Osage comes back and he's healthy this year, he could be a first-round pick. So, really, the only one of those guys who who really gave up all his leverage, you know, and Osage will be a, a junior, a redshirt junior this year, the only guy who, who gave up all his leverage by going back there was Cole Green. Right. You know, whereas on the high school side, you had any number of guys going to college. Yeah, and no, I agree. It's, it's, uh, to me, it's really stood out at the college. Uh, it's just not a great group of those college seniors. Where in the past, you've had some guys. It's been a while, but I just think of the Kenny Baws or the Seth Ethertons or some of these guys who, uh, you know, were good college juniors, went back into the draft as seniors and ended up as first round, kind of bargain first round picks. Yeah, and I think I counted, John. I want to say, looking at our pre draft top 200 prospect list, there were 13 high school players in our top 100 who wound up going to college, and there was one four year college player who wound up not signing, and that was Barrett Lauchs. And Barrett Lauchs is the, where we probably should end this. I mean, uh, he's still out there, still a free agent. Uh, we both checked in on the Barrett Lauchs situation while we were doing draft report cards. I didn't really hear a whole lot of teams that were terribly interested in Barrett Lauchs. It sounded like the workouts, that the number of teams there had dwindled from 20 to 13 to 10, 8 or 9 or 10. Uh, any rumblings out there that you're hearing about Barrett Lauchs? Not specifically. I mean, I know there was some perception, I think, among some fans that the Diamondbacks are pulling the fast one, that, you know, when they fired Josh Burns, who was a, apparently a big proponent of taking Lauks, that, you know, they were going to get a better, you know, get the same pick in next year's draft, which is a better draft. And I don't think they pulled a fast one. I, there were a number of teams, you know, again, he was one of my draft area guys in Texas, a number of teams that didn't want to take him before the draft, that they did not have him cleared medically. He had shoulder problems in high school. He had bone chips removed from his elbow uh, as a sophomore. And that was just a number of teams said, look, you know, we're not going to take him because of that. Also, I mean, just from a scouting standpoint, he's got a very good arm, but he's got one-plus pitch. I mean, his fastball is very good. It's got good velocity. It's got good life. He throws it easy, so it looks quicker. But he doesn't really have a plus breaking ball. I mean, if, if you're guessing, I'm guessing he's more of a reliever than a starter in the long run. And and I think, you know, now the, you know, we all know that the Diamondbacks looked at his shoulder and elbow and were concerned about the wear and tear. You know, it's not like he has an injury that prevents him from pitching. It's more how long is this guy going to hold up? So you already had some teams that weren't going to take him medically before the draft without having being able to give him any kind of, of examination. And now I think there's probably more teams concerned. And, you know, he, I think his workouts, from what I've, I've sensed, have gone okay. You know, velocity's down a little bit. The command's down a little bit. But, you know, the guy hadn't pitched in many months, so I don't think anybody's holding that against him. But, you know, I think essentially he's a sandwich-round talent. Uh, you know, somewhere around the 40th best player in the draft if he's healthy. And then you throw in health concerns. Um, and, and I just don't think there's you – know, I'm sure what it is is I'm sure whatever they're looking for monetarily is not in line with what teams think he's worth right now. And I just haven't heard of anybody who's going to jump up and grab him at whatever the, the, the price is right now. I mean, the, the rumors I heard were, you know, price tag around $750,000. And it sounds like nobody's jumping in for, for that price right now. Yeah, you know, but, you know, again, there's no – 
there's no real hurry. I mean, if you get right. him now, I mean, you could, I guess, run him out to Instruction League if your Instruction League program's still going on. Yeah, I mean, you're all gonna, done. He's not going to do a whole lot between now and spring training anyway. And, and he's not a guy you could run in the fall league. I mean, he's just not no, a guy. You, he's you just wouldn't want to do that. So, exactly. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's like with James Paxton and the uh, – and the Mariners, I mean, you'd like, you know, if you want him, you'd like to sign him. But in practical purposes, you don't really need to sign him before spring training. Now, that said, I think you're better off trying, if you're the player, I'd rather sign now. Because I, I still wonder, John, with Bobby Brownlee, yeah. who was you know, supposed to be the best pitcher in his draft and fell into the, 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 the 20s in the first round to the Cubs a few, a few years back. Yeah, 2002. But he didn't sign until February. And, I've always, and you know, I just remember you know, he was amped up and had to be like basically in, in – peak form in January to show the Cubs again what he had. And then that June, he kind of wore out. He was never really the same pitcher. And I just, no. you get these pitchers, you know, there's any number of pitchers. Matt Harrington's another one. Uh, you know, go through these long layoffs, and then they, they start pitching again or getting peak form at weird times of the year. And it just seems to affect a lot of them negatively. So if I were on the, the player side, I guess, not that I just want to roll over and, you know, sign for the sake of signing, but I think you're you're better off signing now rather than having you know if you don't sign till before spring training then you're going to have to you know amp up and, and show these teams what you have again in January and February and I think it's hard to you know constantly ramp your arm up uh, when you're not used to doing that. I completely agree with you. Uh, if I were advising Barrett Laux, uh, my advice would be sign, <laughs> take the best offer right now, and sign. And you know for me again I mentioned Eric Goodell, I'd take Eric Goodell over Barrett Laux personally. Uh, bigger arm, uh, better breaking ball. Uh, you know, so for me, uh, $750,000 would be crazy. So I mean, When you were talking to teams, John, I mean, I could not find a team that had either made an offer or talked to another team that had made an offer. I, I just don't think – and I don't think it's that people don't want Louts. I just don't think anybody's even really made much of a concrete offer to it. I, I agree. That's, that's what I found in my impression. Again, it's not just an impression. My impression was uh, that uh, – you know, he the asking price was higher than what people were seeing in the workouts. It's not that, not that he was bad in the workouts, but just that when you're looking for that kind of money and you have that medical track record, you better be really good in the workouts, not just fine. So, right. yeah, I just don't see it. Um, but I, I really do think the main reason I want to end on that is I do think there's a misperception that there's this, you know, really special draft-changing talent that's out there as a free agent and if your team doesn't get involved, then it's a really a, a missed opportunity by your team. I just don't see Barrett Laux as that kind of player. I wish him nothing but the best. I don't know anything about I don't know him at all. But, uh, you know, I was on him out of high school. I remember David Chad and Driver Forecard, un, unsigned Tigers draft pick, and they really liked him. He was the one who they got away. $800,000 because he right. really came on at the end of the summer. And, Correct. You no, know, I agree with you. I mean, he, he's a nice guy to have. I mean, I, I liken him. And I, you know, but again, the medical hurts him a little bit. You know, he should have gone probably about where Seth Blair went to the Cardinals in the middle of the sandwich round. And you know, it's he'd be nice, nice to add to your inventory, but it's not the equivalent of, of say signing like a true number six overall pick. Right. If just the guy after him, if Matt Harvey, if something had happened with Matt Harvey and he got declared a free agent, he would have gotten, he would have, he would have been snapped up by now. You know. Assuming he was healthy. Yeah. If it right. Assuming, healthy, he was healthy, yeah. assuming he was healthy. Assuming it was some kind of snafu. Some, you know, he would have been snapped up. So, um, well, interesting thing I think with Laux, I mean, they they did kind of say, you know, this is a, you know, not any, you know, change in policy. It's a one-time deal, and we'll review other situations in the future. 
But, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, we, we've seen the draft attempted to be manipulated by people before. You know, if somebody's going to try to come up with another scenario where a guy becomes a free agent. And, you know, the thing it made me always think about when I think about Barry Laux is, I mean, you know, Scott Biddle went through exactly the same thing two yeah. years ago with the Yankees as a second-round pick. And so it wasn't as high-profile case, but Scott Biddle wanted to sign. I mean, he, he just went out, you know, at Mississippi, destroyed the entire SEC, throwing cutters. Yankees took him in the second round, and when they did a physical exam, they were worried about the state of his shoulder. Again, it wasn't that he couldn't pitch. It was wear and tear, and they were worried about what it was going to be. And I remember Biddle was so, you know, so wanted to sign, and, and you know, when the, when the news leaked out what had happened, uh, he even, you know, at one point emailed me medical reports from other doctors saying that they thought he was fine. I mean, yeah, he I, went I on he went too. on the offensive, no doubt, but he really wanted uh, – he definitely he wanted – sign him and he got stuck and he went back to school and and then you know what the Cardinals signed him and he got hurt and he didn't pitch this year so you know it is what it is but it's just it's you know when you're talking about it's basically an interpretation it's not like either Laux or Biddle had a torn rotator cuff or a blown out you know elbow ligament it was doctors you know looking at it and interpreting well you know based on what I see here I don't think he's going to hold up or I do think he's going to hold up and I just think in a situation like that depending on which doctor you talk to you can find guys who are going to say his arm is going to fall off tomorrow and you're going to find guys who are going to say I think he's going to be fine for 10 years. Right. Hey, let's wrap up real fast. I do have one more email from Jerry McDonald uh, who emails. Uh, we'll wrap up real quick with a Blue Jays question. Uh, Jerry says he enjoys the podcast even if half the discussion is on Indie Ball. That was last week's podcast. <laughs> I, won't pass I guess it. JJ was involved with that one. That's correct. Uh, leftover topic from last week. The Blue Jays do have a team in the Midwest, Florida State, Eastern League, and Pacific Coast Leagues. Last week, we, JJ and I couldn't think of anyone who met that test, which is just that you're basically in the you know, kind of extreme leagues offensively is what kind of where that discussion, I believe, started. But he wanted to say that Aaron Sanchez, their supplemental pick, appears to have more advanced, to be more advanced than other high school pitchers. He got an Auburn promotion, a short season Auburn promotion, and does have good raw stuff. Among the Jays' high school picks, is he the fastest mover? And then he says that even though, he also adds, even though Deck McGuire was their first pick, uh, he's heard more a, a lot of excitement about Asher Woj, Asher Wojciechowski, who was very good at Auburn. Uh, that could he move quickly, maybe even quicker than McGuire? Um, I think Jim, both of us are, are Asher Woj fans, and thought that he fell, uh, him falling to the Jays with one of their supplemental picks was one of the reasons why they had a great draft. And I thought he could have gone. It would have shocked me if he'd gone seven to the Mets or six of the Diamondbacks. Frankly, I would have taken Asher Woj over uh, Barrett Laux uh, if you're looking for a you know the low slot pick there. The one question I had about Asher Wojciechowski is he does throw a lot of sliders, and he was ridden pretty heavily at uh, at Citadel, uh, especially in the Southern Conference tournament. He threw a lot of pitches in that tournament, two starts. The second start was on either two or three days rest, and he threw his full allotment, 100-plus pitches in both starts. Um, but I still think Deck McGuire is probably going to move quicker because that's Deck McGuire's shtick, is that he's a four-pitch polish strike thrower with a good slider, Whereas Andrew Wojciechowski, he's got a good fastball, very good slider. The third pitch may take him some time. And I love Aaron Sanchez, two words, long toss. Uh, <laughs> he's a long toss guy, big time long toss guy. And the Blue Jays are a flexible organization that likes their guys to, if you like doing that, they're going to let you do that. I bet you Aaron Sanchez winds up with a plus fastball and a plus changeup uh, from, from him doing that. And he's got a good, raw, fresh California arm because uh, he's not a showcase monster guy. He's a guy from Barstow, not to not from the L.A. area. What's, what's your take on that Blue Jays draft and those pitchers in particular? Who moves fastest? Um, I do think Sanchez will move faster than any of their high school guys, John. Uh, 
I thought he was a guy who was going to go in the first round, to be quite honest. I thought he would have gone in the last, say, third of the first round. And, and I think to get both him and Wojciechowski in the sandwich round was nice. I mean, the first team that was, I think, had a really good chance to maybe take Wojciechowski was the White Sox at number 13. And yeah. every year it seems like there's a college pitcher, too. Brandon Workman was another one this year. Um, who are talked about as even mid mid first round picks somewhere in that like fifteen to twenty range, and then some dominoes fall where guys drop because of signability and it pushes. You know, last year it was Eric Garnett got pushed down a bunch of picks. Kyle Heckethorn got pushed down, and this year it was, it was Asher Wojciechowski was kind of that guy who was the chain reaction guy who tumbled. And yeah, the, the one way I could see him maybe moving faster than McGuire would be if they they moved him to the bullpen very quickly. They're not going to do that. Right. Um, and I do think you're right. I, I do agree with you, John. I do think Deck will probably beat him to the big leagues, because even if they move Wojciechowski to the bullpen, I don't think that would be until 2012, really at the earliest. Right. And, you know, Deck's pretty polished. They actually like his slider better than Wojciechowski's. Right. Um, and I think there's a chance that McGuire could be you know, in their rotation very early in 2012. So I think he's going to get there before Asher Wojciechowski. But I do like both those guys. I thought they were, you know, very good value picks, you know, guys who could have gone about 20 picks higher and just happened not to. Those are some of the nicest things you've ever said about a Georgia Tech player. So, uh, I mean, as a, as a Bulldog, I'm impressed by your impartiality. Um, I'm, I'm very impartial. So I'm, I'm, all, I'm also going to throw in there that the one other thing I reason I like the Blue Jays draft, this was not a good draft for high school left-handed pitchers. It wasn't a lot of depth at that particular position and the Blue Jays as an organization used to overdraft left-handers in my mind. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of you, David Percy and Zach Jackson, uh, but Griffin Murphy and Justin Nicolino were on the short list for best high school left-hander in this draft class. And they got them both at 61 and 80. So I, I like that. I also like the two position players they drafted there, Kellen Sweeney and Chris Hawkins. I'm a big Chris Hawkins guy. They got at 93. Uh, so I like their draft and it wasn't just because they had extra picks. Um, but for some of the reasons we talked about, some guys who, who fell a little bit lower than uh, than maybe we thought they, they would go. So so thanks to Jerry for the question. We had good questions this week on the podcast. We don't always have as many questions, but uh, this is also a longish podcast, Jim. So I apologize that we went, went a little long, close to an hour, so we better wrap up. Anything else you wanted to add, though, on the draft report cards? fun to do every year uh, I guess as I get older I, I, I continue to shake my head at how I would uh, stubbornly try to do all 30 every year uh, <laughs> I, I must have been a lot younger and my kids weren't as busy uh, I don't know how I ever used to do 30 draft report cards but uh, you know it, we probably that's it, probably one of our more labor-intensive projects John I think in terms of the amount of work that goes into them yeah. versus the amount of space you know we cram six of them onto a page of the May magazine and uh you know it, it's you know for the amount of space they get you know it's probably like about eight or nine inches of, of, of space on the page you know it probably has the highest ratio of of hours spent to inches of, of copy of just about anything we do at baseball yeah i think you're right i think that's a great way that's a great way to put it it is fun to do though i'm happy to be part of uh, doing those now and very happy that we don't uh, have you doing all 30 because it would wear you out before the handbook that would be impossible to kind of comprehend right now well yeah i mean and that's what would happen then i'd be dead you know i think this year i mean was the first time i can remember i think we were working on the overview the thursday morning we were going to print just finalizing that but i think this is the first time that you and i both went to bed the day before the issue went to press and all 30 draft board cards have been turned in yeah you're right that was uh, it was a record for getting them done uh, as early as possible so Speaking of the prospect handbook, which is uh, we're working on right now, Jim and I are both uh, wrapping up Red Sox and Yankees uh, top 10 calls uh, this week and obviously the top 30s. 
Uh, that's available in the Prospect Handbook. And we want to remind you that the ultimate 2011 Baseball America reference books are ready for pre-order. You can reserve your books now, and we'll ship them first as soon as they come hot off the press. Go to BaseballAmerica.com forward slash store and choose among the new 2011 publications, including the Prospect Handbook, the Almanac, the Directory, the Super Register, and the 2011 Great Parks Calendar. Get the advantage in your fantasy league. Of course, we're not talking about the calendar there. We're talking about the handbook. But get the well, advantage you in your – you're drafting on your calendar. That could help you in your fantasy <laughs> That could help you. Get your advantage in your fantasy league and be the first to get your books. Visit BaseballAmerica.com forward slash store for more information. And, again, uh, he's Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next week on the next Baseball America podcast sponsored by MLB Network. Until then, so long, everybody.